Um, so today I'm starting a three-part series um, that I told you about last week, uh, A Promise, A Child, and a Choice. And this is the uh, Christmas series I'm doing this year. And uh, I think it's important for us as we enter this this Christmas season, this time of year. Uh, I know there are a lot of people out there that are very nervous about this time of year. They're very nervous about where they see our country going. They're very nervous about where they see our state going um, and di- different things that are going on. And anxiety can actually... During the time of year where it's supposed to be joy and peace and fun and fellowship, it becomes the time of year of, you know, Zoloft and anxiety and, and, uh, you know, and, and, and depression. And it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. Um, we want to see this time of year the way God wants us to see this time of year. And that involves making a choice to turn off the negativity around us and to shift our focus to something better. And I think that's, that's important. Um, I've talked to people who are not only afraid about today, but they're afraid about the days ahead. Uh, people who are afraid that COVID is just never going to stop being this uh, political tool of division. Um, and these are all things that we allow to happen. We can't stop people from doing things, but we can stop the way they, we allow them to affect us, right? Um, and during Christmas, yeah, this is a time of year where humanity comes together in brotherly love in unity and joy and peace, to celebrate the Savior who took away our sins and who opened up the door of heaven to us. But in reality, Jesus was much more than simply a ticket to heaven. Jesus is a lot more than fire insurance. Jesus is actually the source, and this is where I'm hoping our brains can flip over. Jesus is not just our hope for the future. Jesus is our peace for today. And he actually told us that himself. John 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So when we focus our attention on what matters... We have peace. And the Bible refers to it as that kind of peace that doesn't make sense to people who don't have it. It's the peace that passes all understanding. It's the peace that when people look at you and all, forgive the expression, hell is breaking loose around you, you can be, you're okay because you have a peace that doesn't make sense to those outside of the covenant of Christ. That's the type of peace that God wants for us. And we should be celebrating the birth of Christ during this season because he is the focal point of that promise. He is the, the manifestation of the truth that God always fulfills his promises. No matter what those promises are, no matter how long you've been waiting, God does not leave a promise unfinished. And that's one of the key points, I think, in, uh, during Christmas. But I want <coughs> to... Excuse me. <coughs> I want to ask a question as we get started here this morning. When we talk about Christmas and we talk about the hope of Christ and we talk about the birth of our Savior, there's a question that, that I, I, I think we ignore, and it's where does the Christmas story begin for a Christian? This is a promise of hope. This is a promise of redemption. This is a promise of salvation, the forgiveness of sin. Where does this begin for us as a Christian? Is it the Gospels? Is it the baby in a manger? Where does Christmas start for us. Most people would say the Gospels, but 
Let me ask you a couple of questions. Did you know that out of the four Gospels, the Christmas story is only in two of them? It's only in two. Matthew and Luke. Matthew begins in 118. It's now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And in Luke 2, 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And you know, that's when Mary and Joseph took the journey back to Bethlehem. That's where the Christmas story begins. Two of the other Gospels don't even include it. Mark actually stops, actually starts with John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. So he just skipped right ahead. And that can be annoying to some people. Now, if you think about the two Christmas stories, there are very few details between the two stories that match. There's the virgin birth and that he was born. But there's a lot of details that are left out of them. And that confuses people because when we think of the Christmas story, we think of the complete version. We think of what we know. See, we've put all of these details together and we have like one Christmas story. But what we don't realize is that full Christmas story isn't in one place in our Bible. It's actually connected by a few different different locations. How many of you know that the nativity scenes that we all have all over our house are all wrong? Because the wise men weren't there. We're looking and we think, what? Of course the wise men were there. There was the baby in the manger and they came with the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh and a blanket. Like Tim Hawkins said, soup, you know. No, Jesus was about two years old when the wise men finally found him. And we're like, well, that's very anticlimactic. That doesn't work out. No, this is what God is telling us. And it doesn't mean we can't see all these things together. Because we can put all the elements together. Some people look at the way that the Christmas story is stitched together between the two Gospels. And they think that it becomes less believable. But I actually think it becomes more believable. Now if you think about this. If you take any, uh, if you take a group of people and you take them to the same event. And after the event you ask them to describe the event. They won't tell you the same story. Because they're going to notice different things. They're going to remember different things. If you ever have, you know, parents know this, when the kids come home and something happened and all of them have the exact same story, you know that before you got home, they rehearsed the story. This is what happened. That's not what happened. Shut up. This is what happened. If you mess this up for us, we will take it out on you later. They've worked out the story together. The fact that the stories differ actually feeds into their believability because you're seeing it from a different perspective. And we get to see what was important to that person at that time. And the fact that the story doesn't, it's not included in all four Gospels, shouldn't bother us either. Because if you think about this, There is a reason why the four gospel writers all don't have the Christmas story included. In the first century, the idea that you would include a detail like that doesn't matter to them because every Jew and every Jewish convert in the first century already knew what the story was. See, they had a view of scripture and they had a view of truth and they had a view of the Messiah that we don't understand today because we're so far removed from it. We are post-Christ. They were mostly pre-Christ. And they were preparing for Jesus the same way a lot of us look at end times theory. They knew it back and forward. The Hebrew nation did not simply look at Scripture as this thing they carried around. They looked at Scripture as a mandate from God that you will study this 
your entire life until you know it forward and backward by heart. That's pretty intense. That is pretty intense. We don't think about stuff like that today. The Jewish nation, the people in the Jewish nation knew the prophecies of the Messiah because it was of cultural importance for them. Knowing these things was not an option for them. You were actually looked at poorly if you didn't know these things. Could you imagine coming into church with your kids and people being like, oh, that's that family that doesn't know their Bible verses. Their kids never remember their memory verse. They're just a disappointment to God. Like that's how it was. When your kids would grow up and they would grow up in the understanding of the Lord, that was a point of pride for the parents. And at the same time, when you looked at the scripture, (laughs) they didn't look at it like we do. They didn't look at it like this. See, we do these things like in our Bible, we've divided the Bible up into Old and New Testament. Do you know that that doesn't exist? The idea of the Old and New Testament to, to a Hebrew that's so weird. But they, they don't understand that. You remember last Easter when we had the guy from Jews for Jesus come in and do the, do the live stream for us? And he mentioned the one page in his Bible that he always tears out when he gets a new Bible. And you remember, when, what, and you remember what that was? It was that page in between the Old and New Testament that made, it, made you think that they were separate. They weren't. And we know that because if you think about this, if you look at anything in the New Testament, if you start off with Jesus... And you disconnect the Old Testament from it. What do you got? You got a cult. That's what you end up with. And at the same time, if you don't finish the Old Testament with Jesus, you have an incomplete story. You see, the Gospels, and when I look at the Bible, the Gospels are not the New Testament. They're not the beginning of the New Testament. They're the end of the Old. They're the fulfillment of the promise. They don't start something new. But you see, as Westerners and as people who are a little bit more literate, we like to be able to find things easily. So we added titles. We added, we added uh, chapter numbers. We added verse numbers. We added little subtitles. You know the little subtitles above the little, little sections? You know those weren't actually written? Those are not divinely inspired. The chapter numbers are not divinely inspired. The fact that we have an Old and New Testament is not divinely inspired. Now you think about this in the first century when they would talk about Jesus and they would read the Bible. Someone would go, I was reading in my Bible the other day. Man. Oh, wait. I think I'm one or two rolls in the other direction. Like this is how they did it. Are you kidding me? This is the whole Bible, by the way. On these two scrolls. It's the entire Bible, all written in Hebrew. I can read some of it if I try really, really hard and go slow. They didn't have numbers, chapters. They didn't have verse numbers. They had to know where it was in the scroll. Think about that. You had to, if you wanted to tell someone about something, you just simply, ah! I'm going to set that right there. I'll get to it later. I just screamed like a girl on live stream. <laughs> Hi. Uh, anyway. Yep. Just going to take a drink and pretend that didn't happen. All right. The rest of the message, I'll speak like this. 
<laughs> the only thing that our Old and New Testaments tell us is pre-Jesus, post-Jesus. That's all the division is. Up to the promise of the Messiah and from the point of the Messiah on. That's all it means. So when we look at our scripture, we need to look at it with different eyes. So in the first century, the idea that you would need to explain to someone about the Messiah was weird to them. However, as the church started to grow in the Gentile world, it became more and more necessary. So that's, how, that's why a lot of the New Testament teaching is simply a boiled down version of Old Testament teaching. It's because the Gentiles, which most of the New Testament was written to, they didn't have the foundation that the Hebrews had. So it's different. So when it came to the understanding of the Messiah, you can't just start at Jesus. And they knew that. They had to include more. That's why in like in, in sections like Luke 1 through 4, Luke 1, 1 through 4, Luke says this. He says, Inasmuch as may have uh, <coughs> excuse me, as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative. To set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the of the word delivered them to us. It seems good to me. Having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. We have no idea who that guy is, but yeah, I had a great name. That you may know the certainty of those things which you were instructed. See, this is why these things are included. This is why there's, there's, there's that, like Luke has so many details. He wanted a full account of everything that he could put in so that we would understand from the beginning to the end. That's what he tries to put in his account. So when you think about some of these details, things that we need to know as Christians that God promised, we want to know where, you know, why did Jesus have to come? There's things that we need to understand and we should believe. We should fully believe. But there's a lot of people who don't. One of the things that people have a hard time believing is this whole virgin birth thing. How unscientific of us. So the first prophecy that everyone was aware of, that a vir- it would be that a virgin would conceive. If you think about Matthew 1, 20 through 23, it says, but while he, and this is, this is uh, uh, Joseph's conversation with the angels, it says, but while he thought about leaving Mary, because she was pregnant before they got married, he thought about these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you marry for your wife for that which is conceived in her is of the holy spirit and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the lord through the prophet saying behold a virgin will shall be with child bear a son and they shall call his name emmanuel which translated is god with us and you see, this is one half of a coin. So you have this angel telling, this is, the, this is the fulfillment of the promise. Well, the promise goes all the way back to Isaiah, more than 700 years before it happened. Isaiah seven fourteen. therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 700 years prior, God tells the Jewish nation, I am going to give you a sign 
the virgin will be with child and his name will be God among you. And now here's Matthew recording that very same thing. Guess what? Over 700 years ago when God made that promise, here it is. See, it might not have happened in the time frame that we want. Sometimes we, we hear a promise of God. We think it's for our lifetime. No, it's for our people, not necessarily our lifetime. God fulfills the promise. And we can look back and gain faith because God was faithful that whole time to make this thing happen for us. He didn't let any of it go. So the first sign was shown to be true. One of the things that people, one of the mistakes people make about Christianity is that they think Christianity is a blind faith. You're supposed to have blind faith in something that you can't see, touch, smell, or taste. That's actually not true. Christianity is not a blind faith. Christianity is an evidence-based faith. Because multiple hundreds, hundreds of years ago, God, through the Holy Spirit, spoke to his prophets. They wrote down his words in incredible detail. And then God allows time to pass, allows us to chew on them. And then he brings that prophecy to pass in exactly the right time, in exactly the right way, so that we can believe what is coming because we can believe what was said would be coming. We have faith in the future because we can see God's hand in the past. That gives me peace for today. Because if God's not letting go of a prophecy from 700 years ago, he's not going to let go of me today. I don't have to worry about what's going on in my life today because I know God is always in control, no matter what happens. Good, bad, or ugly, I'm in his hands. He's always going to be there. It's kind of like God slowly reminding us throughout history, didn't I tell you this would happen? Didn't I tell you to watch? Didn't I tell you to keep your eyes open and look for this? The second sign of the promise is that he shall be born in Bethlehem. Luke 2, 1 through 5 says, And it came to pass in, the days, uh, in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while that guy was governing Syria. So all would be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, we're never really told if Joseph or Mary realized what was about to happen. They both grew up in the teaching of God's word. They both knew the prophecies of the Messiah. And it's really interesting to me that as the day comes, the day of birth draws closer, Joseph is in Nazareth, Nazareth, knowing that the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem. And then all of a sudden, a heathen ruler from a pagan nation writes a decree that forces him to do exactly what God already planned. That's cool. That lets me know that not only are Christians at the mercy of God's plans, so are the non-Christians. Whether you want to or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you want to submit to it or not, you will be part of God's plan. Whether you're a believer or a non-believer, God is going to orchestrate your life for his will. I recommend being a believer. (laughs) 
It just makes it easier. So God takes the ruler of the most disgusting pagan nation on the planet at that time and uses a decree to make his will come to pass. Because I seriously doubt Joseph would have been like, oh, God with us. We should go to Bethlehem. Mary would be like, excuse me, you see this? But they didn't have a choice, so they went. And that prophecy comes all the way from Micah 5 too. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah is just the place where they were. It says, though you are little among the thousands of Judea, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one. Notice that's a capital O. To be the ruler in Israel. Now listen to this. Whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Out of you is going to come one who has always been there. That's cool. Now, if you think about that in terms of John 1, 1 through 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, meaning Jesus, was in the beginning with God, the one whose goings forth were from everlasting. He was always there. He was promised, and now he's here. That's cool. So another sign comes to pass. God tells us how. He tells us where. He even tells us when. There's a prophecy in the book of Daniel that like all other prophecies is really only ever understood in reverse. Most prophecies, you don't get right looking ahead to it. You usually get right looking back going, oh, that's what he meant. And I think that's the point. But in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and 25, it reads like this. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, meaning the people of Israel are in captivity at this time. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city. Now listen to the way this is, this is phrased. To finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. 70 weeks. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build, and, uh, and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks and the, street, uh, the streets shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. Now, if you did the math there real quick, 62 and 7 is not 70. There's a reason for that. We won't get into that today because that's the prophecy of Jesus' time on earth. That's a whole other thing. But what he's saying is from the going forth of the time the decree is made to rebuild Jerusalem, there will be 69 weeks till the Messiah shows up. Now, calendars weren't necessarily kept really wonderfully back then, but there's a, there's a ratio in the, in the Old Testament. It's called, the, it's called the, um, uh, the year-day scale. So in a lot of prophecies, what you find is when they talk about a day, it's actually a year. So 70 weeks, 69 weeks is 490 years. So 69 weeks would be 483 years. Now, here's the cool part. From the time that Jerusalem was called to be rebuilt to the time Jesus stepped forward to be baptized by John was right around 483 years. That is cool. But now the thing, you think about this, the thing that they would not have known back then, is that the time he's going to be born or the time he shows up? 
So you don't know until it's already happened. John 1, 26 through 30, John is baptizing, and John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom I do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to loose. John knew who Jesus was. It says, these things were done there. It's actually the town of Bethany. Beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John, uh, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the lamb of God, the lamb was used for the sin offering, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me because he was before me. His goings forth were from everlasting. John knew who Jesus was and he knew what he was there to do. He was there to prepare the way of the one coming before him. That's pretty awesome. So God tells us how Jesus is going to be born. God tells us where Jesus is going to be born. God tells us when Jesus is going to be born. And he shows up exactly on time to begin his earthly ministry to make an end to sin and bring reconciliation between man and God. God showed us everything we should ever need to believe He even used pagan governments to make it happen. But the purpose of all this was not simply to send us a baby. The purpose of all this was not just to send us a baby, and it was not to compel us to support the retail industry for one, one month out of the year. Black Friday is not a Jewish holiday. Right? Now, there was an interesting thing uh, that, was, that used to happen in Germany um, that I thought was, uh, was, was, was kind of neat, that um, on kids' birthdays, I don't know if they still do this, but on kids' birthdays, the kids would give the parents presents as a thank you for being born. Wouldn't it be interesting if we spent Christmas time giving things away rather than collecting things for ourselves. I wonder if that would be more true to the season. It's just a thought, something to throw out there. Here's something to remember. There is a reason why Jesus came, and it's because there has always been a plan. And you need to know there's always only been one plan. There is not many roads lead to heaven. There are not many roads that lead to heaven. There is one road that leads to heaven. And we are told that that path is narrow and it is straight. It is clear. It is easy. We don't all get there. There is a specific process at play. That plan was to restore humanity to their creator. That plan, I hope you realize this, is all about you. The promise of Christmas is all about you. Jesus is there, but Jesus is there for you. Do you realize that for 4,000 years, if you follow the biblical timeline, from creation to Christ is 4,000 years. For 4,000 years, God worked tirelessly to put in place a chain of events that would lead us back to him that would end with his death for our benefit. 
He knew it from the beginning. He didn't figure it out along the way. He had this plan in his mind, in his heart, and I would even say on his lips from the very beginning, specifically to get us back to him. It's about you. Now, some people will get mad and go, no, it's about Jesus. That's great. Jesus came for you. He didn't just come because he was like, I just want to be a person and die. That'd be fun. That, that's not it. He came for something. And the thing he came for was you. So if you think about that question we asked in the beginning, where did the Christmas story start? It actually started way back in Genesis where everything starts. Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's where everything for us begins. In my opinion, it's one of the most important books in the entire Bible. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is the judgment on man and women and Satan after the fall. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you notice when God said your seed, which is the fruit of evil, the offspring of our enemy, then he says, and her seed. You notice he didn't say their seed. He didn't refer to Mary as a married person. He simply said her. It's the first mention of the virgin birth in the Bible. It's all the way back in Genesis. But you don't catch it until it happens. You don't see it automatically. It's because she opened the door for sin through a woman, the door would be closed so that we can find repentance. Isn't that amazing? God balances the scales. All the way back in Genesis, all the way back at the very beginning, before, if you think about this, before he even pronounced judgment on man, God put the story of Christmas in play. God started working on the baby in the manger before he even pronounced judgment on mankind. He had a plan to get you back before you even knew you were lost. And Isaiah 53, 4 through 12 reads like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. These are all capital letters, by the way. Every time he's talking about a person, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the God-man. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led to the uh, uh, led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears, it is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And, uh, um, and, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, this is God speaking, he was stricken. And then they made his grave with the wicked, but with the, wit, but with the rich at his death. Isn't that funny that he was crucified with criminals and buried in a rich man's tomb? Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him into grief, to grief. When you make, excuse me, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out a soul unto death, and he was numbered among the the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many, now listen to this, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Even while he was suffering, he was praying for you. Jesus knew he had one job. Now you think about that prophecy of Isaiah, which we know was more than 700 years before the time of Christ. Look at one of the last things Jesus says to his disciples from the book of Luke. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. So the answer to the question, where does the Christmas story start? It starts all the way back in Genesis when we were lost. God put the promise in play. And now in this season, we get to celebrate the process of the promise. We reap the benefit of the promise. We reap the treasure and the future of the promise. 4,000 years in the making. We get the benefit from that. All of what Jesus did for us. And this time of the year, when we think of the baby in the manger, I want you to think of something maybe a little bit different. The manifestation of a promise. And that promise is redemption and the forgiveness of sin. I can't think of a more powerful reason to celebrate Christmas than the reality of God making good on his promise and sending us the Messiah. Can't think of any better reason to celebrate during this time. And I can't think of any better reason to tell all the nonsense going on in the world to take a hike because I got something else in my mind. I'm shifting my attention to this and the rest of it has no handle on me because I have peace. It doesn't, it doesn't affect me because I, I, I don't care. I have peace. I know what's waiting for me promise. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for what you're doing during this time of the year. I want to thank you that you do not leave us abandoned. Sometimes we feel like things are out of control. Sometimes we feel like we don't know what's going on, but you constantly reassure us. You constantly remind us that you have it all under control and you have always had it all under control. Father, I ask that during this season, during this time, that we can intentionally shift our focus to what matters and take our focus away from the distractions of this world so that we can, can, can give you the praise and the honor that you deserve for the promise that you fulfilled for our behalf. We serve you, we honor you, we worship you, Lord, because you're worthy. You're worthy. For all you've done, all you continue to do, Lord, Give us faith and peace for today. 
that we might spread it to those around us who need it. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.